0: morning what we get to talk about, and it's interesting because we're talking about surrendering all and Um, you know, Jesus take me now and all of that kind of stuff. And we're talking about somebody this morning who was completely surrendered to Jesus in every area of his life, and that's John the Baptist. And we talked about him a little bit last week, and we're going to talk about him more this week, which is good to cover because he is such um, a huge example. We don't get much information in the Gospels about John the Baptist, but we know who he was, we know what his mission was, and we know that he fulfilled it to the nth degree when he gave his life. Um, When President James A. Garfield, before he became president, um, he was actually the principal of a college in Ohio. And one day there was a father who came to him and said, listen, you know, this course that you're taking that my son's in, is there any way you can kind of simplify it so he can make it through faster? We're really trying to get him through college so he can start his career. And, you know, President Garfield said, he said, well, sure, I can do that, but it just depends on what kind of boy you want your man to be right? What kind of man do you want your son to be? When God wants to create an oak tree, he takes a hundred years, right? But when he wants to create a squash, he only takes two months. So what kind of person do you want your man to be? Do you want him to go quickly? Or do you want something significant to happen over a long period of time? And when God wants to do something significant, he takes his time. He doesn't rush it. And, um, you know, God's plan to prepare his people for the Messiah took over 42 generations. Okay, from Abraham to Jesus, 42 generations. Think about that. And then there was a period of 400 years where he didn't say anything at all. The Silent years between the last prophet in the Old Testament, between Malachi and John the Baptist, 400 years, nobody going around saying, Thus saith the Lord. He was taking time to do something significant and prepare his people. And Isaiah said that the one is going to come along who is like a voice crying in the wilderness, saying, Make way. For the Lord, right? Make straight the path for the Lord. Prepare. Everybody needs to get ready because the King is on his way. And that's exactly what John was doing, going around, calling people to repentance, telling them that the kingdom of God was at hand. And the more I think about it, I said this last week, the more I think about it, the more excited I get. We're going to do these shirts this summer, and they're just going to say soon on them. That's all they're going to say is soon. And people are going to ask us, what do you mean? What does that mean soon? And when we say Jesus is coming back soon, we need to get right with the Lord because he's coming back soon. People for generations, right? 2,000 years have been talking about how Jesus is going to come back. Um, I went to a school my freshman year, and it was called Maranatha Academy, right? And the early church used to say, Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. And we say the same thing, come quickly, Lord Jesus. And our time is getting there. I'm getting excited about that. Uh, But John knew this. He knew that the kingdom of heaven was at hand, and that's what he was declaring to people. And even though he knew that, beyond a shadow of a doubt, as he sits there, as he sits there in prison, waiting for what's going to happen. Months go by, and the enemy starts attacking him in his mind, and he just needs some reassurance. So he sent his disciples to Jesus to say, listen, can you reassure me that you are the Messiah? Or is there somebody else that we're supposed to be looking to because I'm ready for the kingdom to take place? And can I just say that your mind is the number one place where the enemy is going to attack you. We fight a spiritual battle. So many times we think we're fighting against people, right? This person did this to me, or I'm upset with that person, or this thing happened in my life, and we're looking for somebody to blame. Can I tell you that we are fighting a spiritual battle, okay? And the biggest battlefield is in our minds. That is where the enemy is going to try to take us out. And if Satan can plant seeds of doubt in your mind, and get you mired in confusion and anxiety and anger. He's gaining ground in your life, and that is his goal. And that's what we talked about last week. Difficult circumstances can cause us to doubt. Right, God, why are you letting this thing happen in my life? Why am I going through this? Am I being punished? Right. Difficult circumstances can cause us to doubt. And then incomplete revelation. Not having a right understanding of who God is. Right. Not having a right understanding of who God is and where we fit into his sovereign plan incomplete revelation of who he is and unmet expectations, not understanding how God works. Okay, we think, you know, I've read my Bible for like two weeks in a row now. I would have thought that God would have done the thing that I asked him to do. And so we have unmet expectations. because We have a wrong understanding of how God works. And then Satan uses worldly influence. When we feed ourselves worldly opinions, right, worldly commentary, Facebook, social media, all of the things, spiritual junk food into our lives? What do we think is going to affect our attitudes and our actions? Those, when we do that kind of stuff, when we engage in worldly influence, that is fertile ground for the enemy to plant those seeds of doubt. And John was starting to have these doubts, but he know exactly where to take that question. And he took that question to Jesus, okay, which is exactly what we need to do. If we have doubts, if we have anxieties or fears, we don't take them to other people first. We take them to Jesus first and let him answer those questions. Just like that old hymn, what a friend we have in Jesus, right? What a friend we have in Jesus. When we're weak and heavy laden, when we're burdened, Cumbered with a load of care, we should never be discouraged when we take it to the Lord in prayer, right? That should be our first reaction when things in our life aren't going the right way, we take it to Jesus. And Paul tells us, listen, because we're in a spiritual battle, because that is our reality as Jesus followers, we need to put on our spiritual armor, Right? If you're going to be in a spiritual fight, you better put on your spiritual armor. And he said, first things first, I want you to put on the belt of truth. I need you to go back to what you know is true, because the truth holds all things together. And the truth is that there is a God, and we're not him. Right? We know that for certain. Um, our enemy is the opposite of truth. The word for um, the devil in Greek is diabolos, right? And diabolos means slanderer. That's what that means. Our enemy is a slanderer. He is a liar. Jesus said that he has been a liar since the beginning, and he is the father of lies. So anything that is false is coming from him. Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. So we put on the belt of truth, and then we put on the breastplate of righteousness. We don't have any righteousness in and of ourselves, so we need to be clothed with the righteousness that Jesus provides. Okay, Paul told the Corinthians that those who follow Jesus are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And when God looks at you, when you have the breastplate of righteousness on, when God looks at you, he sees the purity and the sinlessness of his son. And then we put on the shoes of the gospel of peace. We stand on the gospel message. Christians use the word all the time. We use the word saved. I'm saved. Are you saved? And we use that word. Saved from what exactly? Saved from God. Saved from the wrath of God. The wrath of God that should be poured out on you and I was poured out on his son on the cross. He took the punishment that was due you and I. we the ones that deserve that. He took it. We're saved from the wrath of God. That's what we mean when we say that. The wrath that was deserved for us was poured out on Jesus. If we accept it, we have peace with God. That is the gospel of peace. And we pick up the shield of faith. Paul says that we extinguish all of those fiery arrows of doubt with the shield of faith. We're holding fast to our faith. The writer of Hebrews says that faith is the substance. It's made up of the things that are hoped for. It's the evidence of things not seen. We have to cling to our faith. It's going to extinguish all of those doubts. All of those stinking fiery arrows that the enemy keeps shooting our way. And we put on the helmet of salvation. The fact that I'm saved and that I'm a son or daughter of God and I'm going after Jesus and that I can have peace with God. I can know, I can have peace that whatever happens to me in this life, my salvation, my position with Christ is secure in him. That is the helmet of salvation that protects our mind when we stand on that truth. Isaiah 26.3 says, He will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts you. If our mind is stayed on the Lord, we can be at perfect peace. Then we pick up the sword of the spirit with the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. When Jesus was talking to those two disciples on the way to Emmaus, we talked about this last week, Jesus appeared to those two disciples as they were walking down the road and they had these doubts that they were talking to him about. And Jesus walked them through the scriptures said he started in the Old Testament, walked them through the prophets and everything they said in the law that pointed to the Lord. And so if we go to that offensive weapon, that's the only offensive weapon we have is the word of God, okay? But if you don't know it, then you can't use it. I inherited my grandfather's tool chest, okay? And he drove big rigs for a living. So he has all kinds of crazy tools. If I go into his toolbox and pull out a tool and say, man, this is a fancy looking tool. I bet this tool can do some amazing things. What does it do? I got no idea. (laughs) I don't know what it is. Throw it back in the tool chest, right? If you don't know how to use it, it doesn't make any difference. It can sit in your house all at once, but if you don't dust it off and open it, you can't fight the battle against the enemy. He's going to make short work of you in your mind if you don't have on your spiritual armor. Doubt is one of the enemy's most effective tools, um, and it's just... All it is is him lobbing arrows at us from a distance because he is a defeated foe. We're told that he is like a roaring lion. He is a toothless, clawless lion that's just going around trying to scare us with his roar because that's all he's got. It's a desperate attempt from a defeated foe to try to cause us to doubt. So Jesus answers the question and then he sends John's disciples back with that message of reassurance. And then he starts talking to the crowd again. As soon as they're out of earshot, Jesus picks back up. And this is what he says. This is picking up in 11 verse 7. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there is arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence and the violent take it by force for all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So Jesus performs these miracles in front of his disciples for John's benefit. Then he sends them off to reassure him. They go back to tell John. And as they're leaving, he starts to address the crowds again. Now, why did he wait until they were out of earshot? That doesn't make any sense to me. Why did he wait until they went away to start commending John? I mean, that would have been really good for John to hear as Jesus is complimenting him, right? So why did Jesus wait? I talked about this a few weeks ago, but our ultimate reward, our ultimate commendation comes from Jesus Okay, it comes from Jesus and we won't always see it in this life. In fact, most of the time, people who are following Jesus, following him earnestly, aren't going to see it in this life. Do you want your reward now? Why would you want your reward now? Okay, it's just going to rot. I don't want my reward now. I want it there. Jesus said where moth and rust can't destroy. Our prize is Jesus, that's the prize, okay? That's who we're following. That's who we're believing in right now. Don't you want to see him face to face? That's going to be our prize, and we'll get it when we finish the race. We haven't finished our race yet. Paul says, that's what I'm striving for. I'm striving to finish the race so I can get the prize, that eternal prize. That's when we'll get our commendation. There was an old missionary couple. I think I've told this story before, but that's okay, because it's a good one. Um, There was an old missionary couple who was retiring from missionary work. They had been in Africa for years, and they were retiring to New York. And they had no pension. Their health wasn't very good. And honestly, they were kind of scared, and they were worried uh, coming back to the States. And the ship that they were returning on from Africa, they discovered, had Teddy Roosevelt on it, the president. And so they discovered that he was coming back from one of his big game hunting expeditions. And they watched all the fanfare that accompanied Teddy Roosevelt as people were trying to get a glimpse of him, kind of clamoring around the president. And as the ship moved across the ocean, this old missionary said to his wife, he said, you know, we've given our whole life serving God all of these years in Africa And we're returning back and nobody even, nobody cares. Nobody knows who we are. This guy comes back from a hunting trip and everybody's just clamoring around him. It doesn't seem right. And when the ship docked in New York, a band was there to greet the president, right? The mayor and all the dignitaries were there. All the reporters were there to capture the president coming back. And this old missionary told his wife, he says, this doesn't seem right that the president coming back from a hunting trip should get this kind of a reception. And we have nobody here to greet us when we come home. And his wife, very wise said, dear, we're not home yet. We're not home yet. We don't get our reception. Now we get it when we get there. See the world has its own standards for greatness. This faithful missionary was judging himself, was measuring himself by the wrong standards. And we can't do that. The only standard we should care about is God's standard. And Jesus told his disciples, he said, what good does it do if a man gains the whole world but loses his soul? What difference does it make if the whole world praises you? Who cares if you win the Super Bowl and everybody thinks you're fantastic and they pay you millions of dollars, but you lose your life eternally? The world has its own standards for measuring greatness. Most of the time, it's people who have overcome right, incredible odds to do things that nobody thought that they could do. That is how the world measures greatness. When it looked like things were going one way and they were able to turn it around and take it another way. This is what greatness looks like in the eyes of the world. If you take a man and you bury him in the snows of Valley Forge, greatness looks like George Washington. right? You raise him in abject poverty, greatness looks like Abraham Lincoln. You strike him down with childhood paralysis and he becomes Franklin D. Roosevelt. You deafen a genius composer and greatness looks like Ludwig van Beethoven. Have him born black in a society filled with discrimination and racism and you have Booker T. Washington and George Washington Carver. You call him a slow learner and write him off as uneducatable. And you have Albert Einstein. These are some of the greatest by the world's standards, but God has different standards. He says that the greatest man ever born was John the baptizer. Why was John the greatest? The greatness that Jesus places on John the baptist wasn't because of any kind of special talent that he had. It had to do with his unique place in history and his obedience to the calling that he had on his life, his fulfillment to the calling that God had put on his life. It wasn't based on any special talents or personal merit. We're not saved by works, right? He didn't have a mega church. We don't even have any miracles recorded that John did. No miracles. And Jesus says, he's greater than Moses, their number one spiritual figure. He's greater than King David, which is hard to believe. He's greater than Elijah. Jesus says he is the greatest that was ever born up to that point. And as we look at the text today, one of the reasons why John was the greatest, Jesus says, is because of his conviction. Jesus asked the crowd, did you go out in the desert to see a man who's easily swayed by man's opinions? Did you go out to see a politician? No. A man of preference or a man of conviction? John may have needed some reassurance, but it didn't change his conviction. Listen, we all need, we all need encouragement from time to time. But are we people of pre- preference or are we people of conviction? Do we have a preference for Jesus or do we have a conviction about Jesus? David Gibbs, who is a Christian lawyer, He wrote this about how the Supreme Court weighs the difference between preference and conviction. The difference between conviction and preference, according to the U.S. Supreme Court, a preference is a very strong belief held with great strength. You can give your entire life in a full-time way in the service of a preference. And you can also give your entire material wealth in the name of a belief. You can also energetically proselytize others to your preference. You can also want to teach and believe Um, with your children, and the Supreme Court may still rule that that is a preference. A preference is a strong belief, but a belief that you will change under the right circumstance. Circumstances such as peer pressure. If your beliefs are such that other people have to stand with you first before you will stand, you have a preference, not convictions. Family pressure, lawsuits, jail, threat of death. Would you die for your beliefs? A conviction is a belief that you will not change. Why? Because a man believes that his God requires it of him. A conviction isn't something that you discover. It's something that you purpose in your heart. Convictions on the inside will always show up on the outside in a person's lifestyle. To violate a conviction is a sin. To violate a conviction is a sin. The great English writer William Penn said, Right is right even if everyone is against it. And wrong is wrong, even if everybody is for it. That's something that our culture desperately needs to hear and something that we need to remember. Right is right, even if everybody is against it. And wrong is wrong, even if everybody is for it. We need fewer preferences and more conviction. We need fewer followers and more disciples. Jesus had a lot of followers, a lot of followers, but he only had 12 disciples. Now, the very strength of John's convictions are what makes his questions a little bit more admirable, a little bit more understandable because of his conviction. And it was his humility, right, that drove him to Jesus, to take that question to Jesus. John didn't have a life of doubt, right? Some people live lives of doubt. John had a question, but he didn't have a life of doubt. The fact that he had questions in his deepest darkest moments of his entire life just proved that he was human we can look at all of the prophets in the old testament and we could say that they all had questions of god all of them were asking god why are you doing things this way i don't understand what's going on god why aren't you moving but in those questions there's an unbreakable truth and faith in him their greatness came from the conviction that they had in the midst of their difficulty, in the midst of, in the midst of confusion and, and not understanding the whole picture. But you know what the greatest curse to greatness is? The greatest curse to greatness is pride. When the disciples were arguing over which one of them was the greatest, which is incredible to me, <laughs> that the disciples sat there, Jesus said, hey guys, I'm going to be betrayed and I'm going to die. And they're like, I wonder which one of us is the greatest. And they start arguing about that. And Jesus says, listen, you want to be great in the kingdom? You need to be the servant of all. You need to be the least if you want to be the greatest. If you want to be the greatest, you need to serve. You need to humble yourself. John's whole life was a life of service. And pride gets in the way of service every single time. Pride gets in the way of being a servant. If you don't want to serve, you have a pride issue in your heart, in your life. Now, you don't have to serve in a specific way, but we are called to be servants. If we want to be great in the kingdom, we have to be the servant of all. The church in America has a lot of pride in it. It does. It has a lot of pride in it. We could be accomplishing incredible things for the kingdom. But all too often, the question that comes from people in churches is, what's in it for me? What's the worship like, right? Well, what's the preaching like? What are the small groups like? What's the building like? It's all all very self-serving, right? It's full of pride. But if we want to be great in the kingdom, we have to be humble. And I call this the greatness of humility. The greatness of humility. Being small in our own eyes and having a very big view of God. It's been said that humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's just thinking, less of, your, it's thinking of yourself less, less often. I'm going to say that again because I totally botched that. <laughs> it's not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less often. That's what humility is. And Jesus points this out. What then did you go out to see, a man dressed up in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. Another characteristic of, of John's greatness, as Jesus says, is his self-denial. John's whole lifestyle was a living visual protest against self-indulgence, against self-centeredness. John wasn't seeking the approval of the world. He wasn't seeking the things of this world. Um, He wasn't attracted to it. That was pretty obvious by the way he dressed. Uh, Probably didn't smell great. Uh, Probably didn't. He was eating bugs and honey. So it was pretty. he was pretty evident by the way that he looked that he was rejecting the social norms. Um, His devotion to the Lord and all of the ministry that God had for him superseded his own personal interest and his own personal comfort. A lot of times we get sucked up into our own personal comfort and our personal preferences and our interest. And John was about God's interest, his mission for his life, the world would tell you, look out for number one, right? Look out for yourself. Look out for number one. But John spent his entire life pointing other people to the one. That was what John was all about, denying himself. You know, John was actually a pretty dynamic speaker, and he had quite the following. And if he had just kind of toned down the rhetoric a little bit, okay, not given the full you know, the full truth of Scripture, he probably could have had a bigger platform. You know, he might have even won over some of the religious people if he had toned it down a bit. Okay? But he wasn't seeking to save himself. He put his life on the line to prepare people for the Messiah. That was his mission. I have no self-interest of myself. I'm not worried about my personal safety. My job as the forerunner, as the herald, is to proclaim the kingdom is on its way. You need to get right with God. That was one of the things that made him great. He risked his own personal safety, his self-denial. Great generals put their lives on the line with the truth, right? With their troops. Uh, That's one of the things that we measure greatness by in the world. Uh, They have no concern for their personal safety, only the mission. Um, I was thinking about a movie uh, this week as I was kind of writing this. It was called We Were Soldiers. I don't know if you've ever seen this, but it's set in the Vietnam era. And Mel Gibson is one of the commanding officers. And he's giving this speech to his men before they leave the United States to go over there. And in this speech, he he's like, I promise I will be the first one on the battlefield and I will be the last one off of it. I will be there with my troops, and I will not sacrifice anybody without myself being there with them. And there's this really powerful moment when they land in the helicopters, and before the helicopter even touches down, he's the first one on the field, okay? And they landed in a really bad time, okay? They got ambushed, and so they're trying to survive as they're getting the choppers back there, and as the choppers pull in, everybody's piling back into the helicopters, and as they're pulling away, there's this really powerful shot where they focus in on his foot, Stepping off the battlefield. He was the last one off the battlefield. And he was giving no thought for his personal safety. And John was the first one on the scene. And he he kept at it until his life was taken from him. That was one of the things that made him great. He didn't. He gave no thought to his personal safety or his to, or to his life because he was completely surrendered. When we sang that song, "I Surrender All," he literally surrendered all, even to his life, for the Lord. Great athletes, they train their bodies mercilessly, denying themselves the pleasures that we all take for granted. Uh, the, all of the guys that are going to be playing next Sunday, I guarantee you they didn't get there by coasting through practice. Okay, they paid the price when nobody else was looking. To be able to achieve that level of greatness. Great scientists often risk their health to make important discoveries. Um, inventors risk, you know, they give up all their social life to perfect and you know create their inventions. Basically, the point is that the easy way is never the way to greatness. Easy way is never the way to greatness. And it's the same spiritually. This is the importance of devotions. This is the importance of getting alone time with God. Not just here in this hour that we're at church. We have to do it outside the walls. Things like fasting, denying ourselves, right? Denying our flesh so that we can build up our spirit man. But if we refuse to pay the price in times of solitude when nobody else is looking, it's going to show outwardly when difficulty comes our way. When we walk through trials, if we haven't done the work in the silent place, in the secret place with the Lord, it's going to show itself. John spent his time in the desert. He lived in the desert by himself. He had done the work with the Lord to be able to walk through these trials and be the example to reach that level of greatness. Because I can tell you that there is no rising to the occasion. You can't give out what's not inside of you. Okay? You have to have it inside of you if you're going to live it out. If we spend five minutes with Jesus a day, right? We read through our devotion really quickly. We maybe read a chapter of the Bible really quickly before we head off. But we spend two hours a day consuming what the world has to offer. What do we think that we're going to be influenced by? What do we think we're going to be controlled by when we get squeezed, when the pressure's turned up? When we feed ourselves the things of the world, when we make that our guide, Instead of the Lord, instead of surrendering everything to him, we have a house that's built on the sand. It's not built on the rock. The thing that makes a house stable is its foundation. Okay, And the higher the building, the deeper the foundation, the part that you can't see. And one of the things that made John great, his self-denial... Okay, was getting alone, doing the work, building the foundation with the Lord, the part that nobody could see, so that when he was out there in front of people, he could be totally surrendered, giving it all for God. John was a spiritual giant among men because of the things that he would do when no one else was looking. That's why Jesus says that John was more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there was no one that has arisen greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. This has always been confusing to me. How can the least in the kingdom of heaven be greater than John the Baptist when he just told us that he was the greatest? If we look at the Old Testament prophets, all of them had incredible faith. All of them were pointing to a future Messiah that they could not see. A day that they were not going to realize. John at least got to point to the Messiah. He got to grow up with the Messiah. He got to point to him. Um, But he did not get to see the realization of the kingdom. He saw the arrival, but he didn't get to live in it. He didn't see Jesus on the cross. He didn't get to experience the resurrection. You and I have the benefit of hindsight. We are the ones that get to realize all the fulfilled prophecies, all of the testimony of the believers, all of the examples that we see of the Holy Spirit changing hearts and minds. We get to live in the kingdom that he was pointing to. Jesus called John the greatest born of women, not because he earned it, not because he did it by works, even though he had those, not because of his religious merit. Paul said he had more than anyone he had the, the corner, he had the corner on all of that stuff. But he said, all of the things that I've done religiously are garbage compared to knowing Jesus. John was great because of his obedience and fulfillment of his calling and his unique position in history. We are greater because of our unique position in history and our response to the gospel response to to the gospel and jesus christ somebody that we cannot see in our unique position of where we are living in the kingdom here and now from the days of john the baptist until now the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence and the violent take it by force john's mission from day one was to call people to repentance from sin and to tell people to get ready because the kingdom of God was at hand. He was preparing the way for the Messiah, but not everyone was ready. Not everybody wanted to get ready. Uh, It's a very strange thing because here you have a bunch of religious people who say they're waiting for the Messiah, that they're looking out for him, that they're living with expectation. And then Jesus comes along and they oppose him at every turn. The Old Testament prophets tried to rally people back to the Lord, and time after time, they would just kill the prophets. They didn't want to listen. They didn't want to get ready for the Lord. So because God's kingdom was being denied and rejected spiritually, it was not going to come in its earthly manifestation, not yet. Because they killed both the king and the herald. They killed Jesus and John. And it's no different today. People claim that they want peace. They claim that they want deliverance or assurance that there's life after death. And so we present the gospel. We say, here is Jesus. Here is peace. Here is assurance. And people reject it because they love the darkness. They love the darkness. They would not say it that way. They would not say they love the darkness. But if you reject the light of the world, then you are embracing darkness. Every person, I've said this before, every person has a God-shaped hole right in the middle of them, okay? And it can only be filled with Jesus. Okay, but what people do is they try to fill it with every single thing that the world has to offer, thinking that will satisfy. They set themselves up as the God of their own lives and they find out that it doesn't satisfy. They try to fill it with everything except the Lord because they embrace the darkness. Everywhere the message of the gospel is preached, it evokes a very strong reaction, even violence, as we saw in the early church, and even as we see in our brothers and sisters across the world. Alicia uh, and I had dinner with a couple um, this last week, and she just moved here two years ago from China. And it was really interesting to hear her perspective on the church in America. She said, I was pretty disappointed in the church in America when I got here, to see how apathetic right, and casual the church is here. The church is being persecuted. In China. They're meeting secretly in places, and they're being extorted for money. They're being thrown in jail. And if the church there is on fire for the Lord, we have really gotten lackadaisical in our faith here. So she was kind of disappointed by that. But people have found this uh, particular verse a little bit strange because it actually has two um, meanings that are equally true. Now the first one I just mentioned that the kingdom of God is under attack from the enemy who's going to stop at nothing to try to destroy everything that God has done. Okay? He's going to do as much as possible to destroy it. The other is more positive that the kingdom of God is vigorously pressing itself forward. Okay? Against the attacks of the enemy and people are entering it forcefully and purposefully. Okay? It is being attacked violently, but it is also pressing forward vigorously. The kingdom of God is growing the fastest in the areas of the world where it's under the most persecution. It's growing the fastest in the Middle East. It's growing the fastest in Asia where there's the most pressure. When you would think the church should not be, it's growing faster and they're more serious about their faith. It's being attacked violently, but they're becoming Christ followers forcibly and purposefully. Those who want to make Jesus Christ Lord of their life cannot be stopped. They can't be stopped. But those who have a lackadaisical, lazy faith, right? We've been, um, who is it? Who was the singer? Um, Keith Green, right? Keith Green. If you haven't heard Keith Green, you should listen to some of his music because it is super convicting. The guy was the most passionate singer that I've ever heard about the gospel. And he says this song where we're asleep in the light. And he's trying to wake the church up because we're asleep in the light. We don't realize what we have our freedom here in America to meet and praise the Lord. When John Chrysostom was arrested by the Roman emperor, the emperor was trying to make this Greek Christian recant his faith. He was trying to get him um, to deny the Lord. And so the emperor was talking with some of his advisors about what they should do. And he said, should I put him in the dungeon? And the advisor said, no, that's not going to work because he actually longs for times of solitude where he can enjoy time, you know, the mercies of his God. And he said, well, then should we execute him? And he said, no, because he actually will be happy to die because he believes that if he dies, he's going to be in the presence of his God. So, you know, killing him really isn't much of a punishment. And he says, well, what should we do? And he said, we got it. This is what you want to do. If you want to cause him to suffer, then you need to cause him to sin. That's the only thing he's afraid of is sinning. So if you can cause him to sin, that will cause him great pain and suffering. When Jesus and the disciples were um, together, and Jesus one time asked them, he said, Who do people say that I am? And in Matthew 16, Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The gates of hell, the violence of the enemy is not going to prevail against the church. John Chrysostom was an example of that. It doesn't matter how much we're persecuted, the church will not be stopped. It will press forward vigorously. So Peter says that, and Jesus says, man, you are right on. You are blessed because you are standing on that foundational truth. And I tell you what, Simon, I'm going to change your name. From now on, you're going to be known as Peter. Because you are now standing on this foundational truth. This foundational truth. The foundation of your confession, which is going to be the foundation of the church. That he is Jesus the Christ. That he's the son of God. That he is the savior who came to save us from our sins. That's the foundation of the church. And um, In the Greek, the, the name Peter and rock are very similar. They sound alike. And so the mistake has been made of thinking that Christ was going to build his church on Peter. But Christ didn't build his church on Peter. He built the church on the confession of Peter and who he is. The truth that he proclaimed. And that truth that he proclaimed is under assault to this day. But the gates of hell, the evil forces of this world, are never going to overcome it. They might win some battles, but they've already lost the war. That's the truth. They've already lost the war. When World War II ended and the peace treaties were signed, there were places in the Pacific that where the battle was still raging, where both sides were still engaged in the battle. It took a while for the news to get to them that the war was over. So they were still fighting. The enemy, the demons, are still fighting against us. We're in a spiritual battle. They're not going to stop, but they already know that they've been defeated. The kingdom suffers violence from the outside, but it's also being entered into forcibly by those who believe. One is a positive view, one has a negative connotation. Okay, last verse. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John, and if you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. The prophet Malachi wrote that Elijah would come back before the day of the Lord. Malachi wrote this, chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, Behold, I will send Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children, and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. John was very much like Elisha, Elijah. Elijah. Uh, they shared many of the same attributes. Uh, internally, they had the same power, they had the same spirit, and externally, they had the same rugged independence and the boldness to confront kings and speak the truth, regardless of what the consequences were, to not conform to the culture around them. They were speaking against wickedness, confronting kings, calling them out for their sin, and they suffered because of that. John was a fiery prophet. Elijah was called the prophet of fire. Uh, if you remember when he prayed on Mount Carmel, he prayed for fire to fall from heaven and consume the sacrifice, and it did. Fell from heaven in front of all the prophets of Baal. And then we're told in the scriptures that a chariot of fire actually carried him up to heaven. He was the prophet of fire. Now, when the Bible speaks of fire, it speaks of two things, judgment and purification. When the Bible speaks about fire, it speaks of judgment And purification to prepare the people for the arrival of the Messiah, John came preaching the message that the the kingdom of God was hand. You need to get right. There's going to be judgment if you don't prepare yourself, if you don't get right with God. And then purification, he would baptize people in water. You need to be baptized, cleansing symbolically of your sins. So while fire represents judgment and purification, he came in the power and spirit of Elijah, preaching that there is going to be judgment. There needs to be purification. That was the message of John, who was the last Old Testament prophet. Um, John was just obviously an incredible man. It'll be really fun to meet John someday. Uh, but you would never hear that, obviously, from his mouth. One of the greatest statements that he made in all of the scriptures, um, when Jesus and his disciples, they're in the same area, right? Right. And it says this in, in John chapter three. And they came to John and they said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing. Like, that's your job. That's your gig, John. Now he's over there doing it. He's baptizing and all are going to him. And John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it's given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase and I must decrease. That has to be the declaration of every believer. He must increase in every area of my life. Every area of my life, he must increase and I must decrease. All of my selfishness, all of my self-will needs to decrease until the only thing that's left is his will in my life. John's life was completely consumed by God's will. There was no self-interest in him at all. Every area of his life was completely surrendered. When we sing, I surrender all, those shouldn't just be words that pass through our lips. They need to be a reality that we say, Jesus, you have access to every area of my life. Come and renew it, clean out all of the junk, all of the things that aren't supposed to be there and breathe new life into me as you invade all of the corners of my life. Maybe a better way of saying this about John was that he was small enough to be great. He was small enough in his own eyes to be great. We read through the Bible and we see God repeatedly using people who had a very small view of themselves, but a very big view of who God was. And that's what made him great. And people can, and God can use people like that. Uh, we see Moses who spent 40 years in Egypt thinking that he was somebody, right? And then 40 years out in the desert learning that he was actually a nobody. And then 40 years discovering how God could use a nobody for his glory, And in Judges 6, we introduced to a guy named Gideon, who was learning that he was a nobody. And it was wartime, and Gideon's standing there, hiding out, and an angel appears to Gideon and said, you're going to be the one that God's going to use to save Israel. And he's like, wait a minute, I am a nobody. In fact, I'm hiding here, because I'm so scared of the enemy. Okay? And my family is the smallest in all the country, and I'm the least in my family. Why would you use me? And after God enlisted Gideon, he enlisted a nobody army, a group of Ragtab misfits to be part of this. And God took those nobodies and he won the battle. God takes our weak state and uses it so that he can be glorified. We need to have a small view of ourselves and a big view of who God is. David was the youngest in his family. He watched seven of his brothers line up and see, and hear God say, nope, nope, nope. I've rejected all these guys. I want the kid out there that's watching the sheep. The one that has a very small view of himself and a very big view of who I am. And I'm going to change and deliver Israel with him. He was completely surrendered. If you just look at Jesus' family tree, there are four women mentioned in Jesus' family tree. And that did not happen. When you had genealogies, women were not mentioned. They actually tried to put it in the best light possible. But you have four women, one of them who was a prostitute in Rahab, Then you had one who pretended to be a prostitute and Tamar. Then you had Ruth, who was actually a Gentile. She wasn't even a Jew. She was a Moabite. Then you had, um, you know, Bathsheba, the one that David had an affair with. The controversy, right? All of these scandalous women that are part of Jesus' family tree. Scandalous people from the world's perspective. Small in their own eyes, God used them for his glory. God is looking for men and women who have hearts to say, Lord, I'm a nobody. I'm a nobody without you. Without you, I am nothing. With you, I can do all things. Have your way in my life. And when God finds people that have a small view of themselves and a big view of who he is, incredible things happen. Because when we decrease and when he increases, a nobody is promoted to a somebody in God's kingdom. That's what happens. Um, You can come back up. Uh, I was reading about Hudson Taylor. If you don't know who Hudson Taylor is, one of the greatest missionaries um, that ever lived. And uh, Sam's read all about Hudson Taylor and her uh, books. And there was one time where he was going to be speaking at a missions conference in Australia. And the guy who was facilitating the conference got up and he was describing him to the congregation, to all the people there, thousands of people, um, in very glowing, very complimentary terms. And he presented him as our illustrious guest. And Taylor stood there quietly for a moment. And then he opened his message by saying, Dear friends, I am a little servant of an illustrious savior. I'm a little servant of an illustrious Savior. God accomplished much through Taylor because he was completely submitted to the Lord, completely humble, letting him have his way in every area of his life. And if we will do that, if we will ask the Lord, Lord, I'm nobody without you. I want to humble myself at your feet. Use me in mighty ways. May I have my eyes open to the things that you're doing, not my agenda, I want to be a small servant that serves a very big God. Do things in my life that only you can do. That's what we want to see in this church. That's what we want to see in our families. We see in this congregation when we go out and do service projects. We want to see people impacted for the kingdom. Not things that we can do in our own strength. Only things that God can do. And he'll blow us away when we submit ourselves to him. He'll blow us away with what he can do. And he'll get all the glory for it. Amen.